Hello, you're listening to the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo and you can find us online at writerscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published and write with confidence. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. Our team is passionate about all things writing and in these podcasts, we'll be talking to best-selling authors on their craft. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Danielle Williams from the Australian Writers' Centre. I'm here at the Sydney Writers' Festival and about to speak to one of Australia's most prolific young adult and kids' books authors, Jackie French. Hi, Jackie. Hi. So, um, given that you have published so much over the last 30-odd years, what continues to drive you? You know, what, what keeps you writing so much? As a very honest answer to that, I really don't know. Um, To some extent, I'm still the three-year-old who discovered this extraordinary secret world. Um, I had imaginary friends, and the sister of one of them, um, um, her name was the little tending girl, and she had a sister called Maria. And Maria showed me how to send my mind with the wind to this new world called Tajarakal. And I lived pretty much in Tajarakal. Um, whenever the mass cast was on or any other time and I was bored, I just flew off. I put my mind with a wind to Tajarakal. And partly when I write now, I'm still that three-year-old, sending my mind on the wind to a place that fascinates me. Um, the other half, simultaneously, is very coldly, very professionally, evaluating and working with words, who has got a very, very clear idea of the themes that you want portrayed, the times and the passions you want portrayed, is evaluating words, is evaluating concepts, is evaluating characters. It is simultaneously um, the most self-indulgent job in the world, as well as, I think, possibly one of the most disciplined jobs where you also have to be continually aware, I am not doing this for me, I am doing this for the reader. And the reader is anyone from, oh, Salinger called to the fat lady, the fat lady, her legs are too swollen, she's sitting in slippers in the kitchen, and all she might have is your book for the kid in the western suburbs, um, for a child who is dyslexic like me. I know it sounds a paradox, but at exactly the same time, it is complete self-indulgence and absolutely completely the opposite. You just mentioned your dyslexia, and I yes. was I was going to ask about that. I mean, that must take a different kind of discipline, <laughs> a very strong discipline, I guess, to work with when you're writing. How have you dealt with that over the years? I think the discipline is really my editors rather than me. After they got over the shock of the first book, which they described as the messiest worst book manuscript they had ever received, um, it's really the editors who are the ones who have to really cope with the problem. For me, I get the benefits of dyslexia really without the problems. I suspect... I suspect there is a connection between my dyslexia and my being prolific. 
I don't read like other people do. And excuse me shutting my eyes because I have to. I don't read like that. I tend to scan down a page. I can read faster than anyone I know. I can assimilate data. Um, I can actually take in data. I've got an eidetic memory. Um, I can correlate data. And I suspect that is also part of being dyslexic. But never having been any other way, you can't go and perch in someone else's mind. I, I actually don't know if this is what every writer finds. I do know though, I remember when um, an author went to my son's school, I forget who it was, and my son came home and said, oh, she speaks just like you. And I suddenly realised I've never met a writer who doesn't have recurrent, obsessive, eclectic passions. It might be for 18th century silverware. It might be that they've suddenly discovered um, some works on on Homo floriensis. Um, But it does seem to be a characteristic of authors to have this incredibly wide, incredibly eclectic and temporarily obsessive interest in whatever is going to become the next book or maybe 10 books time. And Possibly without that eclecticism, without that obsession um, and without that absolute passion for something which no one else has really noticed or possibly cared about but um, can be presented in a way that suddenly people think, wow, um, almost as though when you clean a window suddenly you can see it's always been there but you couldn't see it. And I think that probably is often the task for a writer. Um, The view beyond the window has always been there But a writer is the window cleaner. You clean the window and suddenly, not just the view, but the implications of the view um, are there for the reader. So what's your current obsession? Because I know you do have a new book coming out, so um, tell us a bit about that. Um, Always always several, um, again, in different genres. Um, The next one is Wombat Goes to School. That is one in the Darabha Wombat one. And... The lovely thing about the wombat is the wombat cat can get away with anything because it is an animal. So what you can do with the wombat books, all of us, I think, would really love to be able to bash up the garbage bin until we got what we wanted. Um, this is my fantasy of what really what would have happened in my maths class if a wombat had come to school. Uh, the next book, though, is a rather different one. And again, it's really been 40 years in the making. It's called Let the Land Speak. It is a history of Australia looking at the influence of the land itself on the iconic events from the first foot on the beach through Gallipoli, through Eureka. You can't really understand Eureka unless you understand the darkness. It talks about the women who made the land. There is so much talked about fire stick farming and yet fire stick farming was maybe only 3% of well, in fact, many areas they didn't even eat kangaroo. In many areas it was ceremonial. Fire stick farming is easy for Europeans to understand. It's very close to hunt and shoot and fishing. Um, light a match, you can have a fire and you think you've understood fire stick farming. Um, yes, it did have a major impact on the land, but the women had far more of an impact. Um, So this is also a book about how the women made the land because women often don't talk to men about 
women's business. There's one bit in the book, how a man catches a fish. Okay, um, the Good Hunter waits. Um, you you make your spear, the perfect balance spear. Um, you make the barb. You stand and you wait, and you wait with absolute stillness, with your body angled, so the fish does not realise you are there. Three hours later, and with one incredible blow, you put your spear down and you get it through a fish, and it's like an Olympic event. To do that, it's not only extraordinary machismo, but you almost need to be an Olympic athlete to do it, and you carry it back to great acclaim. One fish. How a woman catches a fish. Okay. Um, you carry the basket down to the beach, usually some um, fruit or something like that. Um, you sit on the sand hill while the kids actually maybe go and dig a few tubers that your great-great-great-grandmother have got, and some driftwood for the fire. You put the basket just in the waves as the tide is going out you hold it in place with a stick and as the tide goes out your basket fills with fish and they can't turn around it has taken you 20 seconds you have got somewhere between 30 and 60 fish and you've just actually sat there and laughed and gossiped and talked with the friends while the kids have lit the fire and you've got the fish it's not mako yeah. But my word, it is a very, very efficient way of getting food yeah. for everyone. So a lot of the book is that it is a very much a women, woman's look at the history of Australia, but not just the history of Australia, the land itself and the history of Australia. And the last two chapters are using the past to predict the future. Once you actually do understand the patterns of the past. You can understand whether there will be bushfire next year, whether there will be flood in five years' time, and many other things as well. So it's a book of predictions as well as history. So what age is this book for? Adults. Adults. Um, I suspect, though, there will be crossover. Um, Just as Dara Ever Wombat, I think, is enjoyed by eight-year-olds, I suspect that um, the odd... 12-year-old will probably enjoy Bethlehem Speak as well. So, I mean, your writing career actually started with kids' books. Uh, No, actually. um, I was writing um, short stories for adults, um, uh, sci-fi and detective fiction. Um, But I was absolutely desperately broke, so I sent a kids' book off to the first publisher in the phone book, which was Ava Anderson Robinson. It was picked up mostly because, as I said, it was the worst spelt messiest manuscript. And the mess was because the old typewriter, the E didn't work because the wombat used to leave its dropping. So the E was all soft and squishy. Um, But it was shortlisted for the Children's um, Book Council Book of the Year and the New South Wales Premier's Award. And suddenly, after people telling me all my life, no, no, dear, you cannot make a living being a writer, uh, suddenly I was making a living as a writer. But I was also making a living as a children's writer. And when you are desperately broke as a single parent, living in a shed in the bush with no running water, not even in the creek, and um, no electric power, etc., and the publishers suddenly say, ah, we will now accept every book you want to write for us, you keep writing children's books. What's really... The really strange thing, though, is that I began partly from financial necessity. I always probably would have written a few children's books. I enjoy writing it. But the last 10 years, it's been a point where 
if I never wanted to write another children's book, I wouldn't have to. I could just continue to write books for adults, and I haven't. And I've realised that there is a very, very large part of me that, yes, I am a children's author, partly... Partly it's because kids are honest. Um, you can never make a kid read a book they don't want. They'll ask their best friend what happens, um, but they won't read it. Um, they'll never tell you they like it if they don't. You get letters like, Dear Jackie French, um, our teacher said we had to write to our favourite author. My favourite author's Roald Dahl, but he's dead, so I'm writing to you. Um, Dear Jackie French, um, the rest of the class liked your book, but I fell asleep. I think it sucks. Well, Ben... Um, <laughs> Yes. So, look, it's partly for that incredible honesty. It is also knowing that a, every book a child reads is a major proportion of their life. If a child is only eight years old, a book is going to influence them simply because it is a larger proportion of the life they have mm. lived. Um, there are so many things I think it is important for children to understand and to experience. And ironically, as the world seems to get larger with communications, in another way it gets smaller and smaller and children's experience, living and life experience and, exper and um, exposure to ideas gets smaller and smaller. So I'm a children's author because I enjoy it. I'm a children's author from passion and conviction um, but also, it's, it's fun. Writing yeah. about a wombat demolishing doormats, I mean, what other job has got <laughs> as much fun as this one? <laughs> I still think I'm going to wake up and I'm 12 years old and I'm yeah, yeah. in Miss Emily's maths class and I am daydreaming. Um, yeah. For a lot of my life, basically, this is as good as it gets. So, uh, do you... Do you find it difficult to switch between writing for those different audiences? No, actually, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I change style, um, genre, um, concepts, no matter what audience I'm writing for. There are some subjects that um, kids will probably not be interested in, the complexities of adult relationships. Um, there are things like um, farts that probably very few adults actually really want to read books with that sort of thing in it. But look, by and large, all of my books, I think, can be read by anyone from three to adult, and I suspect they are. Um, I, I really think just about all of my work is really not age-specific. Right. Um, I, I do get annoyed where people advocate um, militating language for children. That's how kids learn language. Um, if a book is good enough, a child needs only understand four words in six, and yet they're going to keep on reading. And when they have come across those words another three or four times, they'll know what they mean. That is how we acquire language and concepts. And so often we so totally underestimate kids. Kids are often more interested in the big questions, the good and the evil, and how can we change the world than adults. Adults will often read a book because if it's their image of being an intellectual, they will um, be more preoccupied with how do you pay the mortgage and is there going to be a train strike tomorrow? But the job of a kid is to understand the world. They are deeply, desperately interested in how the world works, why and what is good and what is evil. 
um, far more often than adults. And so you, to a very, very strange extent, um, for an adult writer writing a book about good and evil, you've probably got a relatively small readership. If you are doing that for kids, you have got probably every kid out there who is passionately interested in what is good and what is evil and where do they meet. Uh, so on, on that note, I will ask you one more question. What is your advice to writers who want to write for kids? Don't underestimate them. Don't be cute. Don't write down. Forget about the books that you loved as a child. Always remember, though, who you are writing for. Don't think of a child as being a different species. Don't think of a child as being stupid um, and don't equate the words that a child is able to read with what they can understand. No adult ever says to a kid, don't watch that TV show because you won't understand it. We say don't watch that TV show because we know they are going to understand it and we don't want them to do it. Do not underestimate your audience. They are possibly the most sophisticated and judgmental and passionate audience you are ever, ever going to get. That's fantastic advice. Thank you so much, Jackie. My pleasure. You've been listening to the team from the Australian Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online at writerscentre.com.au and discover details about our courses, seminars and popular online learning programs where we help students from all over the world. I'm author of the book Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business. And you can find out more on my personal website, ValerieKoo.com. That's Valerie, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.